GM, I'm Matthew Diemer, and this is GM from Decrypt. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today is Monday, January 23rd, 2023. The show today is absolutely interesting. There's two big topics that we're going to talk about. One is a court case. The other one is CBDCs. And they're just right up my alley. I got my undergrad in political philosophy. And so I love to debate things. I love to think about things deeply, debate them, argue. Like if anybody knows me, talk to me about a subject. We'll go on and on and on. I I love it. Give me a couple of beers. <laughs> we might be there all night. So I'm excited to get into those two stories today. Uh, the show might be a little longer than usual, but I think it should be worth it. Really quick, I got an email from a listener said this. Hey, Matthew, I'm a fan of the show from Slovakia. Thank you for writing and listening from Slovakia. I would like to explain what Bitzlato means. And he's referring to the January 19th episode where I was quite surprised by the name. And, and he wants to let me know that Zlato is from the Slavic language, which means gold in English. So despite it being a Chinese platform, the founder is Russian, and he wanted to show that it was BitGold for the most part. BitGold is the name of the exchange, BitZlato, Zlato meaning gold. And thank you very much for writing in and letting me know that. And, of course, thank you for listening all the way from Slovakia. So let's get into those crypto prices so we can get into this news. And the time is 9.13 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have Bitcoin sitting at $22,750, down 0.6% in 24 hours. Still, it's almost at $23,000, which is far cry where we were last month or the month before, and so on and so forth. The crypto community is pretty divided, though, if this is a bull trap or a new bottom, and it's only up from here. Lil Capo of Crypto tweeted this, I've been checking charts this whole time, avoiding the noise of Twitter. The way the upward movement is happening, the way that resistances are being tested, it clearly looks manipulated. No real demand. Once again, the biggest bull trap I've ever seen, but they won't trap me. However, other people in crypto believe this is a new bottom. We won't go below this $22,000, dollars $24,000 range. Dan Held tweeted, the bottom is in. Ethereum sitting at $1,620, down 0.8% in 24, still, it's at $1,600 plus dollars. And in some Ethereum news, since its launch all the way back in August of 2021, EIP-1559 burned a grand total of 2.8 million ETH, or roughly around $4.6 billion of ETH, in today's prices. Just in the past seven days, the protocol destroyed more than 16,364 ETH. That's around 1.62 ETH per minute. The supply growth of ETH has now dropped to negative 1.06% per year. Moving back into our prices... Number three, we have Tether. BNB is number four at 303, down 0.3% in 24, and USDC is number five. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, BUSD, Cardano, Doze, and Solana reclaiming the top 10 spot from Matic. The total market cap is sitting at 
1.04 trillion. We have a BTC dominance of 42.1 and an F dominance of 19% even. Moving into our headlines, the United States prosecutors have seized around $700 million worth of assets owned by either FTX or Sam Bankman-Fried or tied to Sam Bankman-Fried. The bulk of the value of these assets are from Robinhood. Basically, FTX or Sam Bankman-Fried used allegedly stolen funds from customers to purchase stocks in Robinhood. Other funds seized were $20.7 million held by Emergent, another $49.9 million at Farmington State Bank, and between January 11th and 19th, the authorities seized over $100 million from Silvergate. CEO John J. Ray III, the new CEO of FTX, said last week that they recovered more than $5 billion worth of company assets between cryptocurrency, cash, and liquid investments in securities. And in more Sam Bankman-Fried news, Sam Bankman-Fried claimed that a driver crashed into the barricade of his parents' home. The car's occupants got out and made threatening statements. Oh, by the way, if you remember, Sam is sitting at his parents' house on the internet writing on Substack while he's accused of allegedly stealing billions of dollars, but, you know. So anyway, three identified men allegedly got out of the vehicle and told the security guard something to the effect that you won't be able to keep us out forever before driving away. Sam Bankman-Fried has a barricade around his house where his parents have reportedly hired a private security firm for 24-7 protection. That cost them around $10,000 a week. Attorneys have claimed that his parents received a steady stream of threatening correspondence and some threatening physical harm. So they got these letters. They're like, uh, we might need some security around here. People are making some threats. Got this security firm for $10,000 a week, put a barricade around their house, and now people are pissed off and they're going to drive through it trying to get to Sam. Do you blame them? Let me know. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. A Binance spokesperson told Decrypt in an email that one of our fiat banking partners, Signature Bank, has advised that it will no longer support any crypto exchange customers with buying and selling amounts of anything less than $100,000. US That's going to begin February 1st of this year. As a result of this, some individual users may not be able to sell or use Swift Bank transfers to buy and sell crypto unless it's over $100,000. Just FYI, only... 0.01% of Binance's monthly users are served by Signature Bank, so it's not a big deal, but it's a thing. So here's a report on CBDCs that I really wanted to talk to you about. All right, so at least 114 central banks, representing 58% of all the countries that generate 95% of the world's GDP, are now exploring central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. That's up from only 35 back in May of 2020. And a team of cryptocurrency analysts from the Bank of America are very bullish on this. They said that digital currencies appear inevitable. I do agree with that, but we're going to get into the depths of this in a minute. They said this from a report. We view distributed ledgers and digital currencies such as CBDCs and stablecoins as a natural evolution of today's monetary and payment systems. This report from the Bank of America continues to say that they ran scenarios of potential benefits and risks on both the issuance and non-issuance of CBDCs. So they said... CBDC's potential to remove intermediaries is a potential benefit, and it could bring about real-time settlement, complete transparency, and lower costs. For example, cross-border payments are routed through 2.6 different correspondent banks on average, increasing time to settlement. And in Europe, 20% of euro-denominated cross-border payments require the involvement of 5-plus correspondent banks. The result, cross-border payments cost 10 times more than domestic payments. 
Researchers also predict that CBDC adoption will positively impact the unbanked population, which is around 1.4 billion people worldwide and around 6.5% of the U.S. population. I'm not going to bore you with the unbanked facts because I think it's ironic that uh, the Bank of America is telling people that 6.5% of America is unbanked, yet they don't create products to fix this. I just think that's a little dis disingenuous, maybe. Anyway, you can debate me on that one. Matthew Aaron at Crypt.co. The report continued to say that there's been a significant growth in stablecoin transaction volumes over the past two years, which reached $7.9 trillion in 2022. The report states that the proliferation of stablecoins for cross-border and domestic payments and transfers could inhibit the central bank's ability to implement monetary policy of growth if it remains unchecked and unregulated, as well as the increase of systemic risk. In some cases, they say, the loss of monetary control could lead to inflation significantly above current central bank targets. The report states, and I think this is very interesting, by the way, that if they delay issuance of a CBDC, then more people will use stablecoins, increasing the market share of stablecoins, and it will make it harder to implement CBDCs. So basically, they said, if we don't act now and make a CBDC, people are going to use stablecoins because of their efficiency, their transparency, their, their ability to settle transactions pretty much instantly. So we need a CBDC now, basically, to take control. Let's read through the lines here. This is exactly what they're saying. And so after six pages of exploring potential benefits of CBDCs, the bank wanted to tell you about the risks. And so what are they? Well, on the top of the list, the potential competition between commercial banks, such as Bank of America, and the central bank. CBDCs are in some way superior to bank account stores of value, particularly during times of crisis. Though commercial banks and central banks currently exist in a two-tier system, CBDCs would blur those lines. So basically they're saying that the Fed issues the money, the banks got the money, and if you had a central bank digital currency that could be administered and actually created by the Bank of America, who's really the Fed? Or even if it's made by the Fed, but everybody has control of it, who's really in control? I guess that's what they're trying to say here. The second risk, they said, is that bank runs could occur more frequently if safeguards are not included in the CBDC's design. Basically, let's just read this very clearly, that their second risk is that if we don't control the flow of money and how much people can withdraw and how people store the CBDC, there could be bank runs. Basically, people will want their money, and if they want to take their money, they're going to be able to take their money. So we need to put in digital control and program this money to make sure that people can't take their money out the way that they want it. They only could take out the money the way we want it. This is literally a report for the Bank of America. This is, if this isn't freaking you out, I don't know what is going to freak you out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They continue to say, during times of stress in the banking system, people could withdraw deposits and exchange them for CBDCs. Given that there is no credit or liquidity risk if distributed with the direct and hybrid approaches, increasing financial stability risks. The report looks at one more risk that I want to point out. It says, how will governments convince their citizens to use a CBDC? That's the risk. 
and what will governments be capable of if and when they do? So I just want to point out a couple things. One, way more positives than negatives. Number two, the negatives were basically how is it going to affect our control of money? Not about the people, not about privacy, but how are we going to control the flow of money? How can we control the issuance? Who's actually going to have the power, the Fed or the banks? And then the other big risk is, can we really get people to use this stuff? <laughs> nothing about privacy, nothing about the Constitution. And I think this is a very telling report. Link is in the show notes. I think everybody should go read it and start thinking deeply about CBDCs. I'm telling you, this is probably the biggest risk that we have seen in terms of privacy. And so there's a couple like modern scenarios or current scenarios that I want to put on your radar about CBDCs and some policies that are being implemented by the government that if they were implemented by CBDCs, how they would be totally different. For example, let's look at this EV tax credit, the $7,500. And they're talking about which cars qualify, how much of the battery and the car production needs to be in the United States, how they'll grow over time. And imagine if this was all rolled out on a CBDC, programmable money, who can get what, who can buy what, how much of what is going to be tax incentive. Now let's look at reporting when it comes to Venmo. How do we have the $600 limit? With a CBDC, everything will be reported. Also look at the truck drivers in Canada. When they were protesting, they just basically cut them off from their funds, from their banks. They said banks don't allow them to get any funds out. Imagine if that was a CBDC. I just can't tell you how slippery slope this is. And finally, here's the court case I was talking about. It's the SEC. They just charged the Mingo Markets attacker, Avram Eisenberg, for the $116 million hack back in, I think it was October. And they're charging him with alleged fraud and market manipulation. Now, he tweeted and commented on the attack back in October, described it as a highly profitable trading strategy. He also defended his attack in the scheme when he appeared on the Unchained podcast. Here's what Eisenberg tweeted in October. He said, I believe all of our actions were legal open market actions using the protocol as designed. Even if the deployment team did not fully anticipate the consequences of setting these parameters the way they are. Unfortunately, Mango Markets became insolvent as a result, with the insurance fund to be insufficient to cover liquidations. This led to users being unable to access their funds. To remedy this situation, I helped negotiate a settlement agreement with the insurance fund with the goal of making all users whole as soon as possible, as well as recapitalizing the exchange. This is similar to how auto-deleveraging works on exchanges such as Binance and BitMEX, clawing back some profits from profitable traders in order to ensure all users' funds are protected. As a result of this agreement, once Mango Market's team finished up processing, all users will be able to access the deposits in full with no loss of funds. And so this is interesting to me because of two things. Number one, the protocol was written in a way that allowed this to happen. So is he doing something illegal by manipulating the markets, manipulating the protocol? Maybe just by using the word manipulating makes it illegal itself, uh, but not really hacking, not really stealing. Basically, he's using the system as was intended, and he gamed it in one. But here's the Twitter back and forth between Ari Paul and Avram Eisenberg, which I thought is very interesting. Ari Paul said this, Regardless of the legality, I offer you a friendly suggestion. You have a rare talent. If you spend that talent building instead of playing zero-sum games, you'll have more pride in what you've done with your life in a decade or two. I say this as someone who's played a lot of zero-sum games, poker, trading, etc. I wish I had shifted to building a decade earlier. Making money is cool, but making money doing things you're proud of is a lot cooler. The Dalai Lama tweeted this as a reply. 
Bold of you to assume having the knowledge to make eight figures just by clicking some buttons isn't pride-inducing. He said, no assumption necessary. I spent my life in games where it's exactly the source of pride, outsmarting the competition. And there is pride from that. But for the vast majority of people, it wears very thin after a few years. Okay, so you're the best at playing the game. Now what? Ari right, Paul continues to say, maybe for some that's enough. But for the very ambitious, being good at winning a relatively simple game ends up very unsatisfying. And of course, for people who just want to feel like they did more with their life than outsmarting the competition in games. Abraham tweeted this as a reply. You make good points. I've thought about it a lot, but here's my perspective. I have experience as a builder. My first company grew to about $5 million run rate selling goods online. It would have likely continued to grow rapidly, but it was viciously attacked by a competitor upset about our low prices and shut it down. The lawsuit I brought over that is still pending more than four years later. I gave the building path a fair shot and I got told by the system not to bother. Weak antitrust laws, lackluster enforcement of existing laws, and expensive, slow legal systems all contributed to stealing multiple years of my life and associated opportunity costs. Builders are equally susceptible to zero-sum games. Crypto isn't necessarily better because it often rewards outright frauds. After this, I got into DeFi with the promise of being able to control your own funds and destiny. But over and over, I saw similar cases of fraud covered up and ignored. I warned about Luna collapsing in January. It wasn't exactly hard to forecast, yet the exchanges continued to promote them, and Luna was at all the conferences. Waves stole over $500 million from investors and is still on Tier 1 exchanges and presenting at conferences. ClearOS continues to present at conferences after the founder ran a 51% attack to deny millions in unslashed assurance claims that he had a stake in. Apricot, a VC-backed lending protocol, stole millions of dollars from borrowers and nobody seems to care. My personal damage across the lawsuits I've already filed are in excess of $35 million. So would I rather spend my own time now using these lawsuits to bring consequences to bad actors? If that's all I do for the next five years, I'll be justifiedly proud of it. I'm also interested in building supporting builders, although I think 95% of the projects out there are worthless and don't really deserve positive sum framing. I've been following around the idea of a litigation financing firm for crypto cases, and I've also been exploring the crypto banking industry and bringing real-world assets on-chain. Glad to chat more on those ideas and others. That said, it's a tough world out there, and not everyone has the energy to endlessly fight for justice. I wouldn't judge anyone for choosing to participate in zero-sum games like trading as long as they aren't defrauding anyone. And there, I think, is the interesting argument. So, people of the mango markets are made whole. He found an exploit, trade against it, and he didn't like hack it, he didn't break the code, he just outgamed it. And he got money for it. He was transparent with it. He called the makeup markets people. He worked out a deal to make sure that everybody was whole. He kept a reward. I think it was like 40 something million dollars for himself. And he's looking at the fail of regulation. He's looking at the failure of the justice and legal system. He's looking at the crypto space as a whole saying, Look at all these people frauding the market, scamming people, and nobody seems to care. And this is just an interesting, interesting conversation. So what do you think about all of this? The link for this Twitter thread is in the show notes. The link for the article is in the show notes. Read through it. Give me your thoughts. I think that even though he is jaded, even though he has a very pessimistic outlook, is his outlook wrong? Is it justified? Is what he did illegal? Should it be illegal? Do you think it should be legal? Where is the blur between those two? Do you agree with Ari Paul's kind of outlook on everything? Or even though it's pessimistic, a little bit jaded, or very jaded, do you agree with Abraham's point of view? 
let me know. Matthew Aaron at decrypt.co. My email is in the show notes. And that's our show for today. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of GM. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts. Like, subscribe, share, leave us a five-star rating, good comments. And if you ever want to email me again, my email is MatthewAaron at decrypt.co. And until tomorrow, happy hodling, everyone.